Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to this bonus episode, season eight of the Opus, our season on Miles Davis Pitches Brew. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. And there was a lot to cover with this album, and I had very ambitious plans to try to fit it all into all three episodes and then uh, just ran out of time. But this is my damn podcast, and I do what I want. And I wanted to make this bonus episode about a topic that I didn't get to touch in any of the three regular episodes, and that is the album art itself. I had two great interviews covering this, both the inside and the outside, and I didn't want to just cram them into an episode to check the box, because this album art deserves some proper attention. And when you're talking about the physical packaging of Bitches Brew, there is a lot to go into, but I think before we get into all of that, before we get into the interviews, I think you have to start at one place. The title, Bitches Brew. Not bitches with an apostrophe, making the brew, the brew that bitches own, but bitches brew, plural bitches, making brew a verb. Now we could wax philosophical about that grammatical choice there, but since there is no actual answer to that choice by Miles himself, I'm just going to leave that part out in the ether and focus on another part of that title. Bitches. You know, obscenity is a subjective concept. Legally. Even the Supreme Court ruled the only way to deem something as obscene is to, you know, you know it when you see it. So I think a modern listener might look at the title of Bitches Brew and not even blink twice, because in the modern era, we've seen hits like, I don't fuck with you, fuck love, fuck the police, or <laughs> CeeLo Green's fuck you. Not even to mention Beyonce and Jay-Z's ape shit or Rihanna's bitch bet I have my money. Those are just the huge hits, too. Like, we could really go a long time if we went deeper in the charts. But we, as a modern audience, may see a title like Bitches Brew and see nothing shocking. But when it came out a half a century ago, this is not some common thing you would see on your record store shelf. Certainly not a word that you would hear shouted on a dance floor by a bunch of people when a Rihanna song comes on on a Friday night anywhere in America. And we've talked a lot about how jarring and unique the music is on this album. But one of the things that makes this album so great is the total package. It's not just the, the music is wild. The physical album is a manifestation of what's on the record as well. Which, in 1970, 
if you think about it, it's kind of an important thing. This is a time when they don't have music videos. So the experience of the listeners to put the record on on the record player and and like hold the, the physical piece of artwork and look at it, you know? This is Michael Gunn. He's a painter, an illustrator. He's on the faculty of the Minnesota College of Art Design. He's an all-around interesting guy. And he had a lot to say about Mati Clarwine's painting that makes the cover of Bitches Brew. So some of the swirls and the, the actual paintbrushes, the movement of the top of the, the person's hair it kind of swirls into the landscape. And then the fingers, how the fingers, you know, kind of swirl together. That is clearly intentional to correspond with some of the, the music and then some of the melody, some of the rhythms of like, you know, someone's going to be listening to this and then looking at that. And, and they should somehow complement one another. They don't have to be redundant. It, it, it's not like the, the Elvimar request to like be the exact same cadence of a visual rhythm as the music, but they should correspond in some way. And I think, you know, there's a huge success for that. I've been intrigued by this album art since the moment I saw it as a kid. And as a lifelong record collector, I still value and <laughs> absurdly romantic about the physical sensation of holding a record in your hand as you listen to it. But I also grew up in the MTV era. I had never thought of album art as a precursor to the music video, because I grew up with both and have been looking through liner notes my whole life. We all know that video killed the radio star, but now in hindsight, video really killed the album art because radio is just taking a different form. When I open up you know, my new version of radio, which is Spotify, and I want to listen to music, the album art is just a few hundred pixels that I use to ID the album. It's an avatar for the album, not a visual piece of art to complement the album. And that's a loss, I think. I'm not... Uh, overly romantic about the past i love history but i tend to love progress more but i do think that this is an unfortunate side to the progress that we've made in music sure there are people like me that buy records 12 inch vinyl records and we all suffer for it dearly every time we have to move to a new apartment and there are still people that love physical copies of stuff but most people ain't got time for all that, which is no judgment. It, it just is what it is. This is where progress has taken us. But something is lost there because the album art is important. So I'm a visual artist. So when I'm, when I'm studying art in college and undergrad, there's a, a classmate of mine, Justin, and he suggested to the class that music resonates better than visual art with people because the sound vibrations is something you can physically feel. So he was, he was arguing that, that music, the vibrations, you would feel it. And, and I, that stuck with me for, for my life. I was like, that's, that's a tr truth. You know, it's like, that's a truism that music, the vibrations, you're feeling it. And then visual art is like a, is a lower level of influence or, or um, it affects you in a, in a lesser way. About 10 years later, I was in grad school in San Francisco, at San Francisco Art Institute. <clears throat> I had a professor, Dewey Crumpler, who is an incredible painter, mural artist. And I told him that, oh, m music, you know, vibrates your body. So it's, 
it, it affects you better than visual art. And he was like, no, visual art can, can really like have a physical effect on people. And he brought up the cover for Bitches Brew. And he, for his, himself, he said that that was the aha moment. When he saw that album artwork, that's what prompted him to want to be a visual artist. Then it made me go back and reevaluate all the different things that visually have had that effect on me. And I was like, gosh, it really is balanced. Like visual art and music, the sound, they both can have like a spiritual effect on you and a physical effect on you. And you ain't getting that by looking at 150 by 150 pixel square on your phone. You're getting that by picking up the album. See the word bitches right there on the cover. Unfolding that gatefold. And then really taking in the full scope of Monty Clarwine's work. Well, you take in the sounds of Miles Davis's work. And another thing that, that I noticed about it is, is the album, the sound, it has so many different moods. It has like suspense and it has like a, a, a chill relaxation section and it has melancholy. You know, a painting is a still image. It's not like an animation where where it can change and, and morph. And I think this painting is incredible for it's still one static image, but it corresponds with the complex emotions of the music or the the variations, you know. But what makes this painting such a perfect companion to this music is that it, it is complex, just like the music itself. But it is not so strange or so abstract as to alienate the person taking it in. Miles Davis made Bitches Brew, and he didn't want to alienate people. He wanted everybody to like it. And when you look at this painting by Monty Clarwine, you can't help but think that he was operating under the same goal. Like a lot of work with surrealist tones such as this, there is a lot that is familiar. And that draws you in. But it's the way those familiar images are presented, or warped, or manipulated, that really compels you to stay just like the music itself. If people are experiencing, you know, a music or visual art, and it's very similar to something they've already digested and understand, then I think that they feel safe with it, they feel comfortable with it, but then they also feel kind of bored with it. So I think that the sweet spot is having something that's familiar, but then also unknown or new, so that people feel like they have an entry point in, and but then also there's something where they can grow or learn more things. So with the, the music, it's, it's still played with instruments. It still has melody. You know, it has some things that are familiar. Maybe it doesn't have a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, but it has things that are familiar to people. But then it deviates from that, and it's new, and it's, it's creative. It's not just like a redundant bubblegum pop thing. And then with, the, with the, the visual art, with the painting, there's still like representational things like landscape, flower, flames, stars, portraiture, tons of symbolism. But the composition, the arrangement of it is really surreal. And that kind of helps, you know, it's not totally abstract where people would be like, oh, I don't, I don't get it. Therefore, I feel unintelligent. I feel afraid of this. I want to avoid it. It invites people in with like the, the things that are familiar. But then it, it doesn't bore people or it doesn't insult people's intelligence. It like honors the viewer. Like, like we believe in you. Like you're smart enough. Come, come in and and, and you know expand with it.
I love that point. That the album art isn't just some trippy shit slapped on the front. You know, it's some real work. And it's trying to walk the same razor's edge between pop and the avant-garde, just like Miles was on the music itself. The exterior of the album truly is the perfect thing to prepare you for what's inside. And it's important to note that Miles was quite aware of the power of the album art too, the messages it sent. He quite famously, almost a decade before, got in an argument with Columbia over the cover of the album for, I think, Someday My Prince Will Come. The original album art had some white lady on a boat on the front, and he got pissed because he was like, what the hell does this have to do with the music that I made? The label saw it as a marketing tool. You know, jazz listeners love pretty white ladies. <laughs> Miles saw the album art as a potential for something more. And so he had his wife at the time, Frances, sit for the album cover, which was in itself a bold message. Instead of having a pretty white lady on a boat, you had a beautiful black woman on the cover. And from that moment on, you saw the album art for Miles' records start to change. There wasn't any more pretty white ladies on boats. And there was a lot less of something else on his album covers, too. Miles himself. Where you do see Miles is in the album artwork on the inside of the gatefold. In this little candid portrait of him, shirtless and smiling, with only the sky in the background. It's a nice image. But honestly, I hadn't thought much of it until I mentioned that I was covering this album to a friend of mine named Cameron Wittig. Cameron is an accomplished photographer who's done a lot of work shooting portraits of great visual artists and musicians. People like Philip Glass, Chuck Close, Francis Ford Coppola, Miranda July, Richard Hell, Justin Vernon, Lizzo. I, I could keep going. The list is long, trust me. But when I mentioned Bitches Brew to him, he told me that not only was this one of his favorite albums of all time, I believe he said top five, but this little photo on the inside cover has been a giant influence in his own work. I could write an essay just about the, the sleeve photo alone. I don't know why it's been fascinating to me. It's just so simple. You know, I knew of it because I've had this record for a long time and longer than I've been working professionally as a photographer. But I would always go back to that image when people would call me up and say, hey, we want you to do some portraits for us for a record or something like that. And in my mind, I would go back to that image and it's uncredited. I still don't know who shot it. The information may be out there somewhere. Uh, but I found an uncropped version of it, which blew my mind. And I never knew this before. Miles is standing there talking to uh, like a 10-year-old boy, which isn't on the, on the album cover. And he's grinning at him, which is something I always thought was interesting in the cropped version. You know, Miles used to say that he hated all the grinning that Louis Armstrong had to do you know, in the, in the 30s, because it was just trying to please white people, I think is, you know, maybe an actual quote attributed to Miles about that. But it, it was always interesting to me knowing that quote and then seeing him grinning on this cover art. But it's very similar to the, the actual cover art, the illustration with the Wadabi tribesman grinning and opening his eyes wide. It's so beautiful and so simple. I don't know, there was something just always intriguing to me about it. So I would always put it on these mood boards or something and pitch it to people and never really shot anything to try to copy it. But the simplicity is really interesting to me. So over the course of my career, spending a lot of time 
creating images of people for album cover art or promotional materials that you start to really appreciate less complicated ways of doing things. And this, this image of him in the sleeve is, is pure simplicity. It says as much as a really complicated composition. You know, Gregory Crudson is great. He's really fun to look at his imagery. Um, it takes 30 people to make those photos probably in, you know, several days. But there's something to just these sort of snapshots, the decisive moment, these unplanned, propless images that became more attractive to me the more I was actually creating imagery. And so it's so much harder to make something that simple without all the elements and make it work. You can fill your viewfinder with a thousand different things and, and make it exciting, but it might not work as well as taking everything away and just using the barest essential elements. And I think that's what that photo is for me. I love that. You know, on the outside of this album, you have this complex, wild, moving, surreal painting by Mati Klarwein, which really captures the sound of the album. But at the inside, at the core of it, you just have Miles with a smile. Which, as we covered in an earlier episode, it wasn't just Miles who made this record. In fact, it was a big team of some of the best players in the world. But that team would never have been assembled or made anything like this without Miles at the core of it. And I think any artist or any creative person, the, the further along they go, the longer they do it, the more adept or the more talented they get. I think you tend to try and work towards deconstructing things because it, it can be actually a lot more challenging. And what is Bitches Brew if not a deconstruction of jazz and a reconstruction of rock and pop and funk and all of those other things that Miles was channeling at the time? One of the most interesting assignments I've ever had as a photographer was to photograph this very well-known potter named Warren McKenzie, uh, world famous for his this particular style of Japanese pottery. And he told me a story about uh, his favorite cup. And the cup was 400 years old. It was given to him by a friend sometime when he was in college. And he always considered it the perfect cup and that he would never be able to make a cup as perfect as this one. And he researched, you know, where it was from, maybe who made it and determined that it was made, probably made by Korean slaves, you know, 400 years ago. And it was a person who was just there making cups all day long out of clay and not thinking about it. And he always thought it would be impossible to make a cup as beautiful as this one because he could never unlearn everything that he had spent his entire lifetime learning. And that's a very dramatic way to think about this photograph on the inside. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I think that you're making a very good point there. You know, one of the things that Miles was trying to achieve on Bitches Brew was to get these incredible players to forget how they've been taught to play, to rethink the way they taught to play. He even said it to John McLaughlin, who's a guitarist on the album. You got to play the guitar like you don't know how to play the guitar anymore. And so I think that story in your analysis makes perfect sense in the context of this record. You know, this complicated, um, challenging, um, beautiful deconstruction of jazz music itself. It's a really touching photo. 
That's all for this bonus episode of The Opus. Hope you enjoyed it. It's also all for this season of The Opus. I want to thank all my guests for the entire season. And I want to especially thank my guests for this episode, Michael Gaughan, painter, illustrator, and photographer Cameron Wittig for teaching me a lot about this album art and album art and art in general that I hadn't thought about on my own. And if you haven't actually looked at the album art for Bitches Brew inside and out, you can Google it right now on any Google machine. It's definitely worth checking out. And if you have the time, be sure to read the original liner notes. Uh, They are a trip. Or you could head on over to consequencesound.net, enter to win that giant box of all of the Miles albums ever recorded, and uh, get it in your hot little hands in person. Check it out that way. We'll be announcing the next season of Opus soon, uh, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, uh, like, subscribe, spread the gospel, tell someone you know who's bored in quarantine to check out the Opus. Every little bit counts. But until then, thanks for listening, y'all. I've enjoyed this season. For Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is the Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.